Right. Here we go on a Sunday morning in Las Vegas, just after 8 o'clock. I'm Brian Feldman, and this is Out of Line. We are here live same time every Sunday at Fox Sports Radio 98.9 FM and 1340 AM flagship of the Vegas Golden Knights. We are coming to you live from the Wisden, um, a.k.a. Spencer Studio in Las Vegas, located basically at the 95 and Jones. Uh, we are here because we have been booted from the Fox Sports Residential Bank Corp. Studio until further notice due to COVID uh, COVID protocol. I should get that right by now. We've been here for so damn long. It's like forever. Um, joining me on the show is social media director Spencer The Wiz Ostrovsky. Nobody beats the Wiz. Nobody beats the Wiz. The Wiz has his own theme music. And producing today's show, Social Distancing, back in the Fox Sports Residential Bank Corp studio, producer Chris Magnum Chapman, who aside from producing a number of shows at Lotus Broadcasting, is also the locker room reporter for the Vegas Golden Knights Radio Network and the home pre-game show host for UNLV football on our sister station ESPN The Leader. The show is also streaming on the LV Sports Network and you can watch the show live on Facebook Live. The page is called Out of Line. That's O-U-T-T-A-L-I-N-E and you can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter. It's at Out of Line Fox LV. Since we are live, your calls and questions are welcome. The Fox Sports Residential Residential Bank Corp studio line is 702 876 1340. Hi, this is Bubby, and it's time for What's on Tap. Tap is brought to you by our title sponsor, Residential Bank Corp. Whether purchasing a new home or refinancing the home you currently own, Residential Bank Corp is the company you can turn to for all your home financing needs. Residential Bank Corp, funding America one neighborhood at a time, now offering $2,500 free to everyone and anyone who qualifies for a home purchase loan in the state of Nevada. Call 702-964-5720 for more information on Tap. Three straight wins again for the Vegas Golden Knights, eight out of ten, and um, three different players, two for the Golden Knights, one for the Vancouver Canucks, scored multiple goals last night in a really exciting, high-scoring hockey game at T-Mobile Arena. We'll talk about that. Uh, UNLV football team got their second consecutive win. They are on a winning streak after losing 14 straight. Marcus Arroyo and the Rebels have won two, the last two. Uh, they were at um, Allegiant Stadium yesterday night. And uh, I should say yesterday night, yesterday afternoon against the Hawaii Rainbow Warriors. First time they played an afternoon game in a little while. And, uh, hey, they were victorious. We'll talk about that as well, as well as the UNLV basketball team. Played two games this week to start their 2020 21 season and uh, they both wins yesterday against the Pac-12 team. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, we've also got um, a lot of college football to talk about today. Some really cool things and the game or I should say the play of the season happened yesterday. Two teams you might not know about but if you got a chance to see it or you haven't uh, we'll tell you about the highlights and maybe play some for you. Hell of a football game yesterday. Matter of fact a couple of them. A little, little bit of a shake up in, uh, up top in the top 10. We'll talk about that and of course um the Raiders, man. Raiders Nation. Coming off of a bad loss to the Giants last week. Um, we'll talk about that 2020 draft as that seems to be depleting every other week. Derek Carr doesn't even want to check his phone anymore. We'll talk about that when we talk about the Bones a little bit later on in the show. And um, also Spencer uh, is going to, uh, you got some highlights for us today too, don't you? You're playing a little bit, right? Yeah, okay. Get your microphone, man. Get your microphone up there. Get get ready to rock and roll and get going. But um, also, uh, we got some great matchups this week in the NFL Week 10, and it's big. 
big, big, a couple of big matchups, but big for the Raiders and the AFC West. We'll talk about that as, uh, you know, three teams, actually all four teams really could win the AFC West. That's how crazy it is this year. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, that's what's on tap. If you are looking to buy a home or to refinance the home you currently own, choose a company you can trust. Residential Bay Corp funding America one neighborhood at a time. And again, right now, Residential Bay Corp is offering Nevada home buyers $2,500 free towards your closing costs for, again, anyone and everyone who qualifies for any home financing program in the state of Nevada. 702-964-5720 for details. Let's get right into it, Spencer. Go right into Nightcap. Hockey players, as you know, are warriors. They don't give up. They come to play every game. It's time for Nightcap, a cup full of the Vegas Golden Knights. From highlights to interviews to special events, the puck starts here. Petrangelo straight away. Marchessault walking in. Shot score! Jonathan Marchessault, his 100th goal as a Golden Knight, gives Vegas a 5-4 lead. Two seconds, one, that's it. The season high seven goals for the Golden Knights and a seven to four win over the Canucks. Vegas has won eight of its last ten. Couple of significant things there. The big win, eight of ten, as you heard in Jonathan March. So scores goal number one hundred and one hundred and one for the uh, Vegas Golden Knights. Pretty cool to see. They've won three in a row, eight of their last ten. One of the hottest teams in the National Hockey League right now, and they've got the power play working. Uh, Chris, I know you're back there in the studio. Power play is working. Um, they're playing well shorthanded, getting uh, getting scoring from players that we were hoping we would see score eventually, especially in the last two games. A couple guys uh, a couple nights ago getting their first goals in the National Hockey League. Somebody got one last night that we were kind of waiting on. We knew would happen soon, but this Golden Knights team seems to be gelling right now. Yeah, I think gelling is is the right word to use, and it's funny because Evgeny Dodonov, who who scored two goals last night, you know, I I, I think we, we we don't really appreciate the the job that he's done and what he's had to go through since he's come here. Uh, you know, fourteen games in, and he's played with it seems like every single player on on the lineup uh, as far as who who his line mates have been because he's been moved around so much. Last night he played with with uh, Stone and Stevenson. And he was rewarded with two goals. Uh, the, the the second goal where Mark Stone set him up was just perfect. I mean, it was so good. Uh, he he scored a couple big goals recently. He's now got five on the season. But, you know, people come to new teams. There's an, there's an adjustment period. And I asked him about that last night. And he said he's pretty comfortable and he doesn't mind moving up and down the lineup. And he'll just play where the coach tells him to play. And and that's the kind of guy that, that you want, right? And we've, we've seen this with Jake LeCision, who scored his first goal last night. Of course, his father, Curtis, longtime player in the NHL, Stanley Cup winner, his father, Curtis LeCision, I should say. You know, I think we always have to put put that in front of guys who've won the Stanley Cup, uh, Stanley Cup winner. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's they, they've gotten contributions from a lot of unlikely sources. Paul Cotter a couple games ago, Jonas Rombier, who's been in the lineup. And the funny thing is Jonas said that he was going to score a goal uh, Thursday night when he actually did score his first NHL goal. He told Dylan Coglin, so um, Coglin, no, I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was someone else. It may not have been Dylan Coglin, but they told us in the media availability on, on Friday that Jonas called his shot and said he was going to score his first goal. Um, so so that's kind of cool, but now they get Mark Stone back. They've, they've won 8 of 10 
seven of those without Mark Stone, without Max Pacioretty, without William Carlson. This is a team that I think a lot of people should fear. And I don't say that lightly because everyone said, oh, well, if they hover around 500, they're, they're in the mix. When they get all these players back, they're going to be scary. Well, here's the reality. They've won 8 of 10. They're winning games against teams that they're in their division. Yeah, the Detroit game, second night of a back-to-back. That team's playing pretty well. Tyler Bertuzzi's having a phenomenal season for the Red Wings. Um, so so that one, is it, it, it's a tough loss, right? In the Toronto game, they were completely outplayed, blown out. All right, so that's two bad games. And the funny thing is the Detroit game, I don't even think they played that bad. I think they actually played better than they did the night before against Montreal. But now they're starting to get guys back. William Carlson's not going to be that far away. Max Pacioretty, probably not that far away. You're going to start to get guys back into the lineup. And this team has built experience with a lot of these younger players playing in roles who maybe they, they weren't anticipating playing. And Nick Waugh is a guy who, I mean, I, I was thinking about it last night, watching Nick Waugh play between Riley Smith and Jonathan Marcheseau. He's not William Carlson, but Nick Waugh is a really, really good player. And I wonder how much when he moves down to the third line, when William Carlson comes back, how much better he's going to be on the third line because he's been phenomenal playing between Riley Smith and Jonathan Marshall. So, in fact, I, I would almost consider maybe not even moving him down if you can get creative with your with your lines. Yeah, I still think they'll move him down when you bring William Carlson back. And and are you talking about a third-line guy in Nick Raz? You're mentioning, uh, Max, he might be the best third-line player in the NHL based on what we're seeing or as time goes on. It's pretty cool, as you mentioned, the depth of this team as people start to get healthy. Mark Stone paying dividends immediately last night. What a beautiful pass Mark Stone made to Dandenoff on his second goal. Max was as good as it's gotten. I was just like, wow. That shows you the value of Mark Stone, how he he just commands attention, which opens up other players on the ice, and that is part of his specialty. And, of course, Jonathan March is so, uh, you know, a, a staple of this team from day one and now gets his 100th goal as a member of the Vegas Golden Knights, 101st, actually, with both goals. And, uh, we, you know, what, what's funny, Mags, and I love Jonathan March, so I'm so happy. That was the only player I was wrong about going into the offseason. I thought for sure Reeves wouldn't be a Golden Knight. I thought for sure Fleury wouldn't be a Golden Knight. And I had a feeling March so might not be a Golden Knight this year. I'm happy as hell as everybody is that he is, and that's the one thing I was wrong about and happy. But March so gets his 100th goal. And after the game, when he's being asked about it, and you were there, he says uh, that, you know, he wasn't really, he knew he was close, but he didn't know what happened. I, you know what, Jonathan Marshall is an honest, straightforward, upfront player, but the bottom line is, is that there's no way in hell he didn't know that was his 100th goal. It just bothers me when coaches or players pretend they don't know of milestones when there's no question it's too big of a milestone. It's been being talked about for about a week now. So not to, well, not, you know, that he was approaching that. And he scored a lot of goals. I mean, what, seven goals in his last five games? The guy's on fire. Um, you know, but again, or I should say seven goals in the last six games, I believe it was. But again, his second goal, do you got that, uh, the sound of, uh, uh, 
Spencer's still working on the sound from the press conference with Jonathan Marchessault. So will you hear him in a little bit when he was asked about scoring that goal and what it meant? And he kind of said that, you know, he, he, he was aware he was close, but he didn't uh, he didn't know that that was the goal. He had to ask somebody on the bench what was going on when they were kind of celebrating his 100th goal as a member of the Vegas Golden Knights. But either way, uh, great goals, just a really good game, especially what you really like seeing is the resiliency of this team now still down some great, you know, some, some players that they need in Martinez and 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 of course, Max Pacioretty. But to get down two to nothing in the first period when traditionally they've been starting strong and then closing late is the way they started earlier in the season. But to be able to come back and play with this type of resiliency, play strong and get that goal with like 13 seconds to go in the first with Dadunov got his first goal. It was huge. And then, of course, you know, Spryly Smith gets a goal early in the second period and Braden McNabb gets a goal that puts the Vegas Golden Knights up. But then um, Hoglander, who had had two goals as well for Vancouver, he scores and it just was a back and forth game you don't see a lot of uh vancouver's got to be pretty upset they've lost two straight games by seven giving up seven goals in each of those games 14 goals in two games not the, not what they want to see there but um uh just just some some great great playing and that that goal by jonathan marcheso the one that was his 100th goal was just a great shot upstairs over the right shoulder of damco and i don't know if you've got uh you got it yet or he, he, okay he's still spencer's still working on it so if we're still in nightcap we'll get back to that but um real happy for jonathan March or so. Uh, he is truly one of the leaders of this team. And I am just a little bit surprised. I mean, I, there's no arguing the guys that wear the letters on the team. Mark Stone, um, Petrangelo, and Riley Smith, all deserving of wearing the letters. But man, Jonathan marches so it's like you can't have three guys wearing alternate jerseys, but you almost wish you could because Jonathan Marcheseau deserves to have a letter on his jersey. He is truly one of the leaders on and off the ice. And as gritty and as hard-nosed and as tough of a player, Chris, as you are going to see at his size because when you stand next to Jonathan Marcheseau in the locker room, if he put a baseball hat on and just put a regular t-shirt on, you'd never think he was a professional hockey player. And then the minute he puts the skates on and gets on the ice, not only is he a professional hockey player, he's one of the better players in the NHL. Yeah, yeah he, he he really is. You know, and the funny thing with with Jonathan is is he's he's a tough guy, but through thick and thin and I, I will always look to season one where they lost game one in Winnipeg in the Western Conference final. And it was Jonathan Marshall who basically said, you know what? I'm going to put this team on my back and I'm going to I'm going to do some things. And he he scored some big goals in that series and helped them dispatch the Jets in four games. Jonathan Marshall has always been a guy who's not afraid to put the target on his back. You know, it's 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 kind of funny, right? Because we, you, as you mentioned, you look at him, and he's really not much taller than me. In fact, we're probably pretty close to the same size. But he he he's a guy who's got just this tenacity to not mind mixing it up. He's not a free. He, he he's he's scrappy, but he's also highly skilled, and I think that's what makes him so effective. The fact that he's found that good balance of being a scrappy player but also a guy who's highly skilled and is able to score goals and able to to finish finish off shots and and just I mean it's it's kind of funny because he's got 101 goals and the reality is he 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 hasn't played you know we we're not five full seasons in right like he 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 missed a bunch of games last year he missed a bunch of games the year before because of covid right the lockdowns and and shutting down the league and not playing a full schedule so I mean he's a guy where you look at it 
he's produced every single season he's been here, and I think it's it's kind of fitting that he's the first guy who reaches the century mark for the Golden Knights in goals. Yeah, it's, way, it's, it's really cool, and you're right. He is deserving. And again, as you mentioned, he is a scrappy player. Not a guy, he's not logging minutes in the penalty box as a guy that's getting into fights. But he is definitely a guy, when you're racing down the ice for the puck with Jonathan Marcheseau, you better keep your head up and keep turning, because he will hit you, and you'll think you got hit by a guy that's bigger than five foot nine. That's for damn sure. Jonathan Marcheseau is a player, a game-breaker in this league, and uh, and, and he is. It's great to see him be the first guy. You would have maybe thought it would be Carl after that 43 goal first season but it's Jonathan Marcheseau man and it's really cool to see that see that happen to him and now real quickly looking ahead uh, we'll, before we do that uh, Spencer has the tape now so this was Jonathan Marcheseau when he was asked about scoring his 100th goal yeah I, I was not I knew I was close uh, but I didn't know uh, when was it exactly and uh, yeah when they said it on the Jumbotron I didn't understand so I asked like someone on the bench like what did they say and they just told me so yeah I mean I'm obviously pretty proud of that uh, I take a lot of pride of playing for the Golden Knights and being uh, been here since day one and working hard every night trying to help my teammate uh, win a hockey game and uh, yeah I mean they're my uh, VGK is my pride of my career so uh, obviously I want to always be here and work hard and win with that team and that franchise. So uh, that's my main goal. And uh, I'm going to keep pushing towards that towards it and is a, again a, a fan favorite here and you know I'd recommend I you know, people always ask me what jersey should I get in the Vegas Golden Knights you know in the last year and a half or so I've been saying Mark Stone is a good one I think Petrangelo is a great one but I'll tell you what, you want a guy who's been here from day one. There's not many of them left. I have a Carlson jersey already. I think I need to add a Jonathan Marchessault to my collection, man. He's deserving, and I he's one of my favorite players. And, again, I'm really happy that he did not go away. But talking really quickly, looking ahead, uh, Chris Spencer, uh, you know, it, it gelling is what they need to be doing right now, looking at the schedule they've got in front of them. They've got the Hurricanes coming in on Tuesday night arguably the best or second best team in the National Hockey League right now. The Detroit Red Wings may be the most improved team in the National Hockey League, at least at this point in the season from last year. I can't even believe I'm saying that, but the Detroit Red Wings are a fun hockey team to watch. If you watch the game against the Golden Knights, as Chris said, they played better against the Wings than they did against Toronto, but the Wings just played a really good stellar hockey game, and Bertuzzi is having a tremendous season. You can see that guy playing in the All-Star game this year, the way he's going if he continues that pace. Then the Blue Jackets come to Town. Uh, but then they've got the Blues on the road. They've got the Predators. They've got the, the division-leading Edmonton Oilers all in front of them. And the, 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 the Ducks, who have won six straight games, the hottest team in the National Hockey League right now, all right in front of them. So it is a perfect time for them to gel right now. And again, as they slowly eventually start getting these players back, a couple weeks away from Pacioretty, hopefully uh, Martinez, get these guys back in the lineup. This is really good. It was nice to see Braden McNabb score a goal last night. Also one of the original Vegas Golden Knights. Matter of fact, he was one of the first five ever to be named the Vegas Golden Knight, and he's still part of this organization. So that is pretty cool as well. But now is the time they need to be gelling because this is a really tough little bump in their schedule that if they can come out of this maybe with one loss or two losses, it would be tremendous. And as they continue to climb the ladder in their division, I like seeing that a great deal. So we'll see what happens down the road with them. Real quickly, I want to turn to UNLV football. Um, 
man, Chris, talk about, I was going to say earlier in the open, you know, what a day for Vegas sports yesterday all the way around. Both UNLV teams win their basketball and their football team. And even though, granted, Cal finished in the in, in the ass end of the Pac-12 last year, that is still a Pac-12 team with some big bodies up front. And UNLV beat them. And, and that's only in the second game of the season. And this is basically a brand new franchise. Cal returns just about everyone from a bad team last year. But UNLV has two players pretty much. That's it from last year's team in Marvin Coleman and, of course, Bryce Hamilton. So pretty pretty good for their basketball team. We'll talk about that in a little bit on the show. But right now their football team, uh, they, they won last week on the road in New Mexico. People felt that was one of the winnable games. They also felt this game against Hawaii was one of the winnable games. But Hawaii had played tough at times. You know, it's always a little bit of a struggle to come. And the one thing about Hawaii, why I thought Hawaii had a really good chance to win the game, was the start of the game, Spencer. I don't know if you have this, but the very beginning of the game, this was the first play of scrimmage. Hawaii got the ball from the kickoff. This was their first play from scrimmage in, in yesterday's game. Day-Day Hunter in the backfield. Hawaii fans very happy to be seeing number zero back there. Fake handoff, and Cordero's going to let it fly down the hash. Nick Martiner holds it in, and he breaks the tackle. And how about that for rolling the dice and hitting the jackpot on play number one in Vegas? That was a Hawaii, just just an incredible, uh, you know, I'm sitting there, I hadn't even gotten comfortable in my chair yet in the press box, and it's 7 to nothing. and all we've talked about all week, the, the, the thing is, UNLV needs to jump on Hawaii quick, because Hawaii's a fast-starting team. they like, probably one of the best first-quarter teams in the Mountain West, and yet, here, one of the worst first-quarter teams, excuse me, in the Mountain West, and yet they score on the game's first play. I'm like, oh, no, here we go again. But UNLV shorted up. I mean, they they didn't get another touchdown pass the entire game from Cordero. Uh, that one pretty exciting. But, um, you know, UNLV showed resiliency. Cameron Field did not have a good game through some god-awful, ugly interceptions. And I want to ask you this. Spencer, I'll ask you first, and Chris, you can chime in on this as well. And, and I'm just, I, I want to pull the glove back. I want to peel back the layers of the onion on Tate Martell. I'm done with this conversation because people ask me about it all the time. People know him locally. The guy, kid played at Gorman. He was supposed to be one of the best players in college coming out of high school in the country. Went to Ohio State, didn't work out from there. Goes to Miami, doesn't work out from there. Has a thumb injury, gets surgery, comes to UNLV. I think every one of us, Spencer, you and Chris, both alumni of Nevada, Las Vegas, I think every one of us thought by this point in this season, Tate Martell would be the starting quarterback at UNLV. Good, bad, or indifferent. But not only is he not the starting quarterback, Brumfield's still out. The depth chart has Cameron Friel as the number one and Justin Rogers as the number two. Now, here's the deal. Guys, we have seen Justin Rogers in three games this season, four games this season. He is horrible. I mean, I'm sorry. He's a kid. I don't, you know, you hate saying that about a kid who's in college. I'm talking about purely as what I've seen playing the quarterback position at a D1 college level. He's horrible. And yet he's the number two guy in a depth chart with Bartell. Obviously, unless something's wrong or something else is hurt that we're not being told about, this guy is not being put on the field, Spencer. Why is my question? I didn't go to the postgame press conference yesterday. UNLV basketball game started right after the football game. And you had the hockey game last night, all kinds of stuff going on. So I didn't stick around to hear what was said in the press conference. But my question is, and I wanted to ask him, what the hell? Because when Cameron Friel was really struggling, I thought, give Tate Martell the ball, man. Put this kid in at some point in the game. Let's see what he can do. I mean, this is a lost season. Now, you know, he'd love to obviously try to win two more games, get a, four wins out of this. And, you know, I, I didn't want to see him boasting about a second win when your two wins are over New Mexico and Hawaii. But either way, 
Why does Tate Martell not see the football field? Your opinion? Yeah, so Cameron Friel, like, you know, he's held down the fort relatively considering his position, and he's looked okay. Really bad game yesterday. But it's interesting. Like, this is supposed to be the guy who's supposed to come to the team and kind of be the next quarterback for the program, and he can't even get a chance. We've seen a few things like that with the UNLV program, and especially, you know, under Marcus Arroyo. For some reason, some guys, I don't know if it's in his doghouse or if he's injured, but it's its just, again, we talked about this all season long. There's no transparency with Marcus Arroyo. It's like he won't talk to anybody. He's not going on any show, so it's like we're There's here to guess. There's transparency in his play calling. <laughs> it's like we're here to, like, guess and everything. That's not what you're supposed to do with the football program. its It doesn't, uh, you know, condone or, like, allow like this really good system in place and here we are just trying to be like okay here's this kid we brought him over as this big project and now like he can't even be the de- the third depth chart on the you know when Brumfield comes back he won't even be uh you know he'll be off the depth chart for there uh for Cameron Friel no I agree Chris I gotta ask you and I know it's a tough question for you to answer only because of what you do you're the pre-pregame host you want to keep it positive and I'm not asking you to sit there and throw yourself under a bus for UNLV but I gotta know because at this point in time there's only two answers in my opinion and that's it one there is an injury that's that's much worse than we know with Tate Martell, something that is inhibiting him to play at the highest level. Or two, he just simply isn't good enough to be a collegiate starting quarterback. Chris, wh- which one is it? I honestly don't know, Brian. Um, you know, I mean, I, I'm going to be honest. I, I think Cameron Friel has played well enough to be the starter. And I know you mentioned the start, the, the start he had yesterday, but I thought it was really interesting because our friend Steve Cofield, he caught up with Arroyo, Marcus Arroyo before the half or at the half, and he asked him, you know, what do you tell uh, Cameron Friel? And it was it was really, I, I thought it was good. He said, look, it's 0-0 now. It's 10-10 at the half. We're starting all over. We just got to be the better team in the second half. And and UNLV was the better team in the second half. As far as Tate Martell, I I, I don't know, Brian. I, I think maybe there there is a little bit more to the injury than than first was was let on. I mean, look, if you're a quarterback and you have a thumb injury, that's a pretty big issue. Um, I know they, they tried to bring him in in a couple of other uh, uh, facets, try to get him involved in the offense. I know he's lined up as, as, as a wide receiver a couple times, and they've brought him in to just run like a an option play. But I I, I don't know. But the reality is I, I, I it's not really – I don't think it, it's the difference between UNLV winning or losing games. I mean, I think, like I said, I think the, at the end of the day, this is a team that's one possession away from – winning multiple games. I mean, they've, they've lost a lot of close games, and it's a young football team with a true freshman starting quarterback, uh, a, a very uh, young offensive line with the exception of, of Julio Garcia. I mean, look, this is a team that I think now that they've found a way to win games, I think they're going to be they, – they, they've been competitive all season. Now it's a matter of can they carry the momentum of the last two weeks into – the final two games of the season. I think they match up really well against San Diego State. The Aztecs aren't a team that blows anybody out. I think they've won seven games by five or less points. So this is a this is a team that UNLV certainly should be able to hang with. Going to Air Force and winning on that last day of the season, look, that's not going to be easy. Air Force is a team that that just for for what you know you, you got to credit what they do at the academy. I don't think UNLV is going to win that game. But look, I I would not be surprised in the least bit if the Rebels close out their home portion of the schedule with a win against San Diego State this Friday. I think they have a real shot to win that game. And Cameron Field is going to have to play well because San Diego State, obviously their defense is their bread and butter. 
But offensively, I don't think they're any better than any team that UNLV has played this season, especially in the Mountain West Conference. I mean, like I said, they, they were so close in so many games, San Jose State, Utah State. They absolutely could have won those games, and, and we might be talking about a completely different set of circumstances going into these final couple games if they find a way to win at Fresno, find a way to win at UT San Antonio, who I think is now 9-0 on the season, by the way, or 10-0, pretty impressive for the Roadrunners. But I, I, I don't know. Like I, I want to see how this team builds off the last two weeks. I think following the Reno game, we were all disappointed, and look, they followed it up with two big wins. The first two in the Marcus Royal era, they won one on the road and one at home. Now you have momentum going into that game against San Diego State, who's a top 25 team. And 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 look, go in there and and compete with those guys and and maybe pull off the upset because I certainly think that UNLV is not going to be intimidated by the Aztecs. And I don't think the Aztecs are, are, are really a team that is going to blow the Rebels off the field in any way, shape, or form. Well, we'll see. You know, UNLV's defense, uh, at times... Chris, they, they look really uh, formidable. I don't want to say great or anything. I heard Caleb, uh, which I got to get on Caleb Herring. I'm listening to him when I was in, in the bathroom uh, real quickly. I'm hearing over the loudspeaker, and I'm standing there, and I hear Caleb say, yeah, at the end of the second half, you know, UNLV's got to come out with a lot of momentum after playing lights-out defense. Lights-out might be a slight exaggeration. I don't think the only time you ever say lights out when you're talking about UNLV is when they turn the stadium lights off at the end of the game. Other than that, lights out would not be a term I would use for UNLV. Did they play good? Yes, at the end of the game. And as a matter of fact, after the first series, UNLV played decently. I mean, Cameron Friel, a couple of bad interceptions, and UNLV still continued to keep them off the scoreboard, which you have to give defensively some credit. I still think the play calls a bit play calling is a bit methodical. I think it's bad sometimes. I think it was a moronic move, and I don't want to hear somebody say, well, they have nothing to lose is why he went for that play on fourth down when they didn't get it. The bottom line is right there, you tie the game. You're at home. You want momentum. The last thing you want to do is not get the fourth down and give the other team momentum. They got lucky. It didn't happen that way, but I thought he should have kicked a field goal there just that because of where they were at at that point in the game, and you tie the game. They still ended up getting a field goal, going to the locker room 10-10 at halftime, and they came out and won the game in the second half. They did what they needed to do. A win against number 22 San Diego State has won nine games, and you're right, Chris. They played in a lot of close ones as UNLV. The difference is San Diego State, which is what a good team does, the old moniker is good teams win close games, they win the close games, and UNLV loses them. Usually when it comes down to that, it is a matter of coaching. If you're always losing close games, typically that is a coaching issue because your team is competing for an entire game. I'm not going to sit here and, and spend the spend any more of the show ripping on Marcus Royal. You know, I again, the jury's still out on him. If they win the San Diego State game, That would be, in my opinion, even though it's at home, even though it's on senior night, that would still be the marquee win, obviously, of his career to this point. Knocking off a top 25 team would be huge. I don't think it happened, Chris, and I actually think that maybe it goes the other way and UNLV gets let down. I hope I'm wrong, though. I always hope I'm wrong, but I just have to say what I feel. So we'll see what happens Friday night. UNLV, if you haven't got a chance to see Allegiant Stadium, you haven't seen this version of the Rebels, they are a team that does compete. It is more exciting football than it has been in the past, even though the first half of the game yesterday was kind of Snortersville. Um, it, it, it has been more exciting. I'd suggest you go out there Friday night, man, a great way to spend a Friday night and check out Allegiant Stadium. It's an awesome place, and you really get to walk around without like bumping into a million people when you go to a UNLV game, although the crowds are decent for UNLV. If you took the fans from Allegiant Stadium and put them in Sam Boyd, it would have 
looked like a packed house because the whole lower level was was sparsely filled. And, you know, of course, a lot of Hawaii fans, they travel well, but pretty cool. All right, let's move on, Spencer, and, and hit it. Facts this. If you don't like the facts, take your ass back to bed. Fact this. Prior to yesterday, number eight Oklahoma was one of four remaining undefeated teams in D1 and had won 17 games in a row dating back to last season, which was the longest active winning streak in the FBS. This came to an end yesterday when number 13 Baylor beat the Sooners uh, uh, 27-14. But according to Oklahoma head coach Lincoln Riley, the final score should have been 24-14. to I know why Dave tried to kick the field goal. Uh, I don't agree with it. I still think, above all else, there's a there's a code of sportsmanship that I believe in. I wouldn't have done it, um, but that's that's his decision. That's his football team. Um, how the officials don't give us a uh, enforce a 15 yard penalty when you probably got 5,000 people on the field is unbelievable to me. Um, so uh, it is what it is. I mean, that's that's his decision. That's the officials' decision. I uh, don't agree with it, but. The sour grapes of Lincoln Riley. Lincoln, look at the tiebreakers in the Big 12, being the fact that right now you and Oklahoma State are both one game over Baylor. There's a bunch of tiebreakers, and they go like this. Wins, loss versus each other. Wins, losses versus the rest of the conference. And then scoring margin against each other. Uh, Before the game, Baylor was at a minus 13. They're now at a plus three. They needed that field goal. You don't know when you're not going to need it. It wasn't running a score up. It was looking at potential tiebreakers. If those three teams end up in a tie, this will give Baylor a little bit of an edge, pending an outcome with Oklahoma State. But the point is, is uh, wow, dude, you're really going to get on there and cry about that? Here's what happened, why it was it was kind of a touchy subject. With about 40, I think it was 47 seconds to go in the game, um, Baylor had the ball, or Baylor had the ball, and they kneeled on it. And they thought the game was over. Oklahoma, everyone starts running locker. Well, it's a 40-second play clock. So it was 43 seconds after he kneeled, and they blew the play dead. So there was still three seconds on the clock. Now, where Lincoln Riley had a point is, shouldn't there have been a 15-yard penalty? Not a 15-yard penalty, a delay a game penalty, a five-yard penalty, moving him back five yards for delay a game. I guess you could have done that. Um, the field goal would have still been good from five yards further out, though. But the bottom line is, come on, man. I mean, Spencer, what did you think? I mean, is, is that just whining because, you know, Oklahoma is, was not getting respected. Oklahoma's been whining because they're the number eight seed in the country. They haven't lost a game yet. Why are all these teams with one loss in front of them? They say Cincinnati isn't even a, in the Power Five conference. They're undefeated, yet they're ranked in front of them. So Oklahoma's whining. This was the game that if Oklahoma wins, they probably jump up into consideration for a playoff spot. This was a big game. They lose the big game. Shut up. All I'll say is this. The salt is tangible. I've never heard a coach so salty after one in my life. So, you know, the game's over. It's like you just got to accept it. You lost, man. You got to move on to next week. He wants to stay, you know, what just happened 10 minutes ago. He does. He really does. He does. doesn't want to forget about it. And, uh, you know, Oklahoma, I've said all season, I kind of thought it was a house of cards. Now, hey, they played decently. 
but they were beaten by a better Baylor team. And now you see why Oklahoma, for all those those naysayers out there that were thinking, oh, the Oklahoma should be up, you know, higher in the rankings. Now you see why they were ranked where they were. The experts kind of know what they're doing a little bit. Same thing why Cincinnati is still on the outside looking in and may remain there because a lot of people feel Michigan may leapfrog Cincinnati in the standings, waiting to see if Oregon maybe loses next week to Utah, which is very formal. ESPN's power ranking only gave Oregon a 40% chance of winning on the road at Utah, who thinks ranked 24th in the country. So that could shake things up a bit. Cincinnati still needs a lot of things to happen for them to get a shot in the playoff. And I want to tell you why it's justifiable. Alabama would beat the dog snot out of Cincinnati. Georgia would beat the dog snot out of Cincinnati. Ohio State would beat the dog. I mean, I can go on and on. There's probably since Michigan, Michigan State would all beat Cincinnati. I love what Cincinnati's done this year. That's why the playoffs should be expanded. So a team like Cincinnati could be exposed in the playoffs. Not in a bad way. They get their opportunity. And if, if I'm wrong, you can prove it that way. That's why it does need to be expanded because a team like Cincinnati deserves that shot like they would get in the end, like a, a, an underdog would get in the NCAA basketball tournament. But the bottom line is you can't leapfrog these teams because no Nobody wants to see Cincinnati play Alabama in a playoff as much as they might want to see, say, Michigan play Alabama yeah. or Ohio State play Alabama, even Oregon. You want to see a bigger program that you at least feel has a chance. If Cincinnati plays Alabama or Georgia and gets waxed, it's, it's everyone's like, oh, I knew that was going to happen. You don't want to see that. The college football playoffs, this is all I'll say about it, is, is about money. So if Cincinnati's in the college football playoffs, you're making less money. If Ohio State's in or any of these other bigger programs, that's it. It's all that's what it's all about. No, it is. It really is. And 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 the Power Five conferences, though, Spencer, to justify that, are going to bring in the money. It is about money. And now, especially since we're starting to stipend college players, money is even a bigger issue. And, you know, the Power Five, man, you got to get yourself into a Power Five conference. Maybe Cincinnati will be able to start making a case why they should be a Power Five conference team. But right now, they're not. And Conference USA, whatever it's called there, isn't going to get it done. And like I said, a lot has to happen. Oregon's going to have to lose. Michigan is going to have to lose to like an Ohio State again. Um, you might have to see Georgia beat Alabama. And if Georgia, if Alabama takes their second loss of the season, do they get in as a two-loss team, considering how they played all year, especially if that's a really close game? You know if Alabama beats Georgia, there's no way, because Georgia shouldn't lose again. There's no way those two teams aren't, aren't Georgia's not going to, Georgia's going. Unless they lose before the conference championship game, they are going to the playoffs. It's that simple. So it's going to be really interesting down the road to see what happens. But um, I, you know, I, I don't know. Cincinnati, as much as I'd like to see what they can do, you've seen them struggle in a couple of games against teams that Alabama or Georgia beat by 50 points. And, and that's what bothers me a little bit about that, Spence. So, um, but talking about college football, I've got to, I've got to tell you, man, yesterday, um, I think, and I, I think anybody would be, would be hard to saying that this wasn't the uh, greatest play, uh, the play of the year right now. It was South Dakota, South Dakota versus South Dakota State. Okay, South Dakota State is winning the game, and South Dakota State goes to run the clock out. They do, but they don't. There's still one second to go in the game. Like, the, 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 it's about a 60 yards to the end zone. And South Dakota State does the old Hail Mary, and it works. Check it out. First down and 10, back to pass, final play. Camp rolls over to the right side, steps up pressure, got to get rid of it. He's going to heave it towards the end zone. It's going to go around the five. The ball's tipped in the air, still being tipped. Caught, touchdown, South Dakota! Oh, my goodness. The ball was tipped in the air. It was caught by South Dakota, Caleb Vanderesh, and the Coyotes have stopped. 
you had if you haven't watched the highlight, go check it out. It is really cool. You know, the same thing you always hear. Bat the ball down. They didn't do it, and it got batted around. And he got it down to about the, the Hail Mary, down to about the three-yard line, and then getting batted up in the air. And uh, Jeremiah Webb of South Dakota falls in the end zone. Great play, without question, the college play of the year, man. It was really, really cool. You don't see a lot of that, especially like one second. What does it matter? And like I said, uh, South Dakota State running out the clock. They have one second. Oh, and that's why they always say play to the final gun or the final whistle, man. Really cool, but that was without question the college play of the year to this point. Spencer, let's get into it. The Bones. It's time to talk about the Las Vegas Raiders. And uh, wow, have the last three weeks just been head spinning when we talk about the Raiders. I don't know if they'll be able to follow suit like UNLV basketball and football did, like the Vegas Golden Knights did yesterday. The Raiders can complete the Vegas sweep by beating Kansas City at home today. It's going to be tough. Kansas City a bit resurgent. Definitely not playing like the Chiefs of the last couple years. But, man, the Raiders have a lot of holes to fill right now, Spencer. You're talking about, uh, you know, and and I want to get into in a second that 2020 draft, which is turning out to be um, a debacle. And uh, John Gruden's final negative mark on this team, when you look at that draft, only three players remaining. And uh, you're talking about no player picked over, or I should say picked above 100 in the draft, is still on this Raiders football team for various reasons, a lot we know about. But um, huge order tonight, as it's the game of the week, the 5-3 and three Raiders and the 5-3 and three Chiefs uh, going at it to maintain a share of, uh, well, to, to, to potentially maintain a share or take the first place in uh, in the American Football Conference's Western Division. What do you think, Spence? Yeah, well, you know I'm, I'm Derek Carr's number one detractor, or at least I was. I've, I've turned around a little bit this season. He had his worst performance, you know, by far against the Giants. He was basically the reason they lost that game. But I'm not going to lay it on them this week. He lost one of his closest friends. Like, we all know the relationship he had with Henry Ruggs. And for something like to happen it's like how are you supposed to react you know it's like this horrible event but he is still your friend like if your best buddy did something like that he'd probably still stick by their side you know they got deshaun jackson that was the big signing they needed to get either him or obj everybody wanted obj but i think deshaun jackson very much fills that role that henry ruggs did it's the vertical route we all know that deshaun jackson is probably the best specialist when it comes to running specifically that so that should help stretch the field they should be back on track you know they're a little the media this week was a little bit more back to normal. Not so many questions about John Gruden and Henry Ruggs, who, you know, John Gruden's suing the league, so maybe there's a few leftover questions. But other than that, they're here to play football Sunday night against the Chiefs. It's a division rivalry. It's about the NFL. It's not about the outside stuff this week. So hopefully the Raiders can pull it off. Well, let's hope they can keep it away from being the outside stuff. It's awful hard, Spencer, as that's the majority of the talk. And John Gruden suing the NFL. I knew this was going to come because of slander. You know, he's, he, he wants his name cleared a little bit. Like I said, if I'm him, I take the $60 million, $70 million he's been paid, and I go live in Brazil or something and just forget about it. Live the rest of your life. You can't, you can't clear it up, John. The, uh, the emails are the emails. And even though you weren't the one being invested, you kind of got screwed by the investigation. You know, obviously it was justifiable in karma because of the things that you put in those emails and the things that you said, the misogynistic comments and everything else. Dude, you did it to yourself, man. You can sue the NFL. I don't know what you're trying to get out of it. Were you going to say that somebody else sent the emails for you? I mean, come on, John. It was terrible. And uh, and real quickly, looking at the 2020 uh, draft, Spencer, uh, Chris, um, you look at it, their first pick, number 12th overall, Henry Ruggs, obviously no longer with the, no longer with the 
team or in the NFL, uh, probably be in jail pretty soon. You've got uh, uh, Damon Arnett, who, because of the Henry Ruggs incident, this was brought to the forefront again. All kinds of, you got videos of him with guns, and this, this guy just doesn't seem like a good guy. And he was the 19th pick, the second first round pick they had, uh, gone, not in the NFL anymore, also cut from the Raiders. No one's picked him up. Uh, you may see him picked up again in, in next year. I don't know. Lynn Bowden was a third round pick, 80th overall. He's on injured reserve with the Miami Dolphins right now. Brian Edwards, who was the third round, 81st pick in the draft. I stand corrected. I said over 100. Brian Edwards was picked 81st in the draft in the third round. He's a starting wide receiver. And with him and Hunter Renfro, he's one of the top two options now. Well, you got to consider Darren Waller's the top option. But as far as wide receivers go, it would be him and Hunter Renfro. So his value became more valuable to fantasy football leagues. I just don't know how good Brian Edwards is going to be. He's a tall, lanky guy. Spencer, he plays well. I, I, I think he'll be all right. Tanner Muse, uh, you know, out of Clemson, they were really excited about getting this guy in the third round with the Hunter pick. Well, he's a special teams player with the Seattle Seahawks. You've got uh, John Simpson, one of the bright spots of the draft. He is a fourth round. He was picked uh, in the fourth round, 109th overall. He is the Raiders' starting left guard right now, so he's paid some dividends. And the last pick they had in the draft, the 139th pick they got in the fourth round, he's a reserve cornerback for the Raiders, and that's Amik Robertson out of Louisiana Tech. So you got three players left. Nobody earlier than the third round left from that 2020 draft where they had two first round draft picks and they're both gone for various reasons not because of their poor play although Arnett was hurt a lot we don't know how good he was going to eventually be Ruggs was starting to come into his own huge gigantic losses for the Raiders Raiders went to New York maybe it was just too much for them finally because they played poorly last week in in, in the in the Meadowlands so this week they come here they're playing the the what three time reigning uh, AFC Western champion Kansas City uh, Chiefs a team that definitely is on the downslide this year big win last week against the Packers but of course the Packers without Aaron Rodgers you would have think they would beat the Packers by a lot more than they did that was a close football game with with a bad quarterback I mean Bryce Love I'm sorry man I just I don't see it um, so Spencer question to you now. How do the Raiders compete with Kansas City? What's it going to take to beat this Chiefs team? The Chiefs are only favored by two and a half, and that's only based on how poorly the Chiefs have played and the fact that it's a primetime game in Las Vegas. Well, I think it's got to come down to energy is probably one of the biggest factors. And, you know, that first week when John Gruden was gone, they had a new head coach. There was a reason to play harder than they did before. You know, they, they want to represent this new coach. They want to get him that first win. But with, you know, the game against the Giants, they had there was nothing to play for. I mean, it was just a negative energy period. So they got to bring it. They got to bring it for the crowd. The crowd's going to be into it, of course. Honestly, like they're going to dictate the energy of the game. Like even with the people inside the stadium, because everybody's on edge right now. You know, there was this horrible thing that happened. They played horrible, and now everyone's going to be on the edge of their seats watching them. And it's it's going to start with Derek Carr. I talked about him just a, you know just a few minutes ago. If he's able to you know get back on track. The rest of the team, because he is the leader of the team. He is the guy that everyone looks to. He answered the questions for all these things. He was the main guy to answer for John Gruden and now for Henry Ruggs. So when, when he goes out there and if he plays really well, I promise you the defense is going to be super into it. The crowd is too. And they can definitely win this game if they're able to do it. If they're able to get to that kind of start. And it's got to be leading with Derek Carr. Uh, no, I, Derek Carr, but I think also Spencer, as you just mentioned, defensively. This is the best defensive team I've seen the Raiders put together in, in a half a decade. 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Maybe 20 years, you're right. But, I mean, for sure, in the last five years. And um, they're playing well. They play well together. You know, Max Crosby, man, talk about a guy that's just developed 
developed into a premier defensive lineman and a guy that was picked, what, in the third round of the draft when he was picked. So he's a bright spot. But I like defensively, but but to me, it's offensively. They have to exploit this Kansas City Chiefs defense, which has been nothing less than subpar this year. And uh, they can exploit him. Defensively, you can, you can throw the ball over him. And I think the key to this is Derek Carr, but I think really the key to this is going to be the receiving core. Hunter Renfro and Brian Edwards need to take the heat off Darren Waller because I'll tell you, they're going to start off probably double-teaming Waller every time he comes off the line of scrimmage without Ruggs being there. So the key is Edwards and Renfro are going to have to find ways to get open. Hunter Renfro is a master at it. Edwards catches the ball well to open the field up so they can't focus so much on Waller and it open up. Of course, Josh Jacobs and Kenyon Drake are going to have to run the football so they can't stack the box again against them. But against against the Raiders, I don't see him stacking the box. I see him mixing up the defenses. And Kansas City's going to have to play decent defense. I, I don't believe I'm going to say this, Spencer. I think it's going to be a close game. I think the Chiefs are going to win the game. But at first, I was thinking Kansas City is going to run away with all the turmoil here in Las Vegas or surrounding the football team. I think the Raiders will actually play a tough game. But I think when it's all said and done, Kansas City will win the game. But I don't I don't know if the Raiders won't cover that, that measly two-and-a-half-point spread. They may lose by a point or two. I, I couldn't agree more. And th- this is the most important game of the season. This may determine whether or not the Raiders make the playoffs because it doesn't look like two teams from the AFC West are going to make it because the division games are just too close. Whoever can take advantage of them and certainly winning divisions, obviously the goal. But, you know, I think these teams are going to start falling further down because the Denver Broncos, none of those games are gimme either. So it really comes down to who can win the AFC West. The Raiders have lost games like this every single season, in the you know, in the past like three years under John Gruden, where they're kind of on the edge. So I think if really like this could determine that both of these teams seasons, the Kansas City Chiefs are also on the bubble, just like the Raiders. This is the kind of win that gives you the confidence to beat the Chargers at home to beat, you know, to make sure you take care of business against the Denver Broncos. It sets the tone for, you know, there's not that many games left. We're like already at the halfway point of the season. Week 10. No, I agree with you. And and, uh, the, the Chargers, I'm sorry, the Vikings can play good at times, but they're hosting them. The Chargers are wasting the Vikings today. That might be my pick of the week. So I don't think the Chargers are going to lose, which means they're going to stay up top. And the Broncos are hosting the Eagles, a, a winnable game for Denver as well. So the AFC West is going to be tight down to the end. And the Broncos, you know, playing better than I expected this year. Teddy Bridgewater has turned out to be a formidable quarterback. I mean, you know, that he's finally passed that injury. And Teddy Bridgewater is a guy who deserves to start in the NFL. I like the AFC West. It's a fun division to watch, fun divisional rivals. And as he said, I agree. This game's monstrous for the Raiders. A couple of other big games today. To me, the game that I really kind of want to see today, one's going off early. Not a game I would have thought at the beginning of the season I was looking forward to, but the Browns and the Patriots. I like that game. Two, five, and four teams, both above 500. The Browns, I think we expected there, maybe even a little better than they are. The Patriots, who would have known Mac Jones, man, would turn out to be a quarterback that in his first season as a true rookie could lead this team to the postseason. I still don't think it's going to happen, but it's kind of a cool story. So I like that. Um, the Falcons and the Cowboys. Falcons surprisingly four and four. This is a bad football team, but they find they have found a way to win a couple games. Cowboys six and two coming off a putrid loss last week. This will be an interesting game, also in Arlington. But it'll be, or excuse me, in Dallas. But it'll be interesting to see what happens in that game. Um, to me, besides the Raiders game, my my game of the day, I want to see the Saints and the Titans. Spencer, can the Titans continue to win without Derrick Henry? I mean, Derrick Henry, the best running back in the game, maybe maybe among the top four or five players in the NFL. They're without him the entire season. They went and picked up an ancient Adrian Peterson. Although AP can still run the football a little bit, he's still a tough nosed guy. He's getting older, and he's had one of the worst knee injuries that he's already come back from. 
I don't know, maybe he should have stayed in retirement. And then the Saints. How good is Jameis Winston? How good is this Saints team? I think today's a big telltale sign for both those teams. Yeah, well, well Jameis Winston's out for the season now, so it comes oh, down to... Oh, that's right. You're yeah. right. I, but my bad. comes down to Trevor Simeon uh, and Taysom Hill. And Taysom Hill. But the, the big controversy is, you know, that why are they starting Trevor Simeon when Taysom Hill is actually playing decent football? And they seem to have a good system around him. They paid him a bunch of money, but that was actually for accounting purposes, if you guys don't know. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is the thing, because if Derrick Henry can heal fast, then he'll have them at the beginning of the playoffs. But if they barely score, well, if they miss the playoffs, obviously he's not coming back. But if they just barely make the playoffs, I'm not sure that's enough momentum for them. But if they play really well going into the playoffs, like let's say, you know, they win the division, maybe and they're going into there and then they get Derrick Henry healthy and they're playing the best football of the season. If you just throw in Derrick Henry for a hot football team, that gives them a chance to win a Super Bowl. Not saying that's going to happen, but you know, these are the kind of games that can build that kind of momentum. No, Spence, you're right. And, and Tennessee with Derrick Henry is one of the best teams in the national football league, because that is how good and what a difference maker he is. So I, I agree with that. And then the final question on the NFL lions play the Steelers. I thought there was no hope whatsoever for the lions. And next thing you know, Ben Roethlisberger COVID protocol, isn't going to play today. It's going to be Mason Rudolph. Uh, Mason Rudolph is still good enough to beat the Lions. They're at Heinz Field in Pittsburgh. I don't know why people think. I haven't heard a couple people predict the Lions will get off the snide and win their first game of the season. I know they're hungry to do it. They're a cat in the corner scratching. You don't want the dubious honor of uh, honor. I don't know if that's the correct, if I should have even used that word, but the dubious distinction of being a team without a win in the National Football League and going 0-9. But uh, Spencer, I still see the Steelers coming out ahead in this one. It, it's going to be a difficult game just because of how good the Steelers are defensively. But you have to give credit to Jared Goff for, uh, you know, their offense looks pretty good. If, if they can add a wide receiver next year, I actually can start seeing this team shaping out. Now they have like no defensive players. That's a big issue. But you can still be happy on the offensive side of the ball. But, you know, considering that they're playing the best defense, well, maybe it's not going to work out for them. I like to use pretty good instead of lights out like Caleb here, but I can never use anything with the word good when it comes to the Detroit Lions. I'll say they've been serviceable. I still think they need another quarterback to send them the rest of the way. We'll see. Listen, closing this out, uh, uh, again, UNLV basketball finally gets started. Kevin Kruger underway. Two nice wins for him. Gardner-Webb, they get a good 14. Uh, uh, well, they, not, a, not a big, huge one. I think they won that game by six points, but then they beat Cal last night, 55-52, heading against North Dakota State which should be a win tomorrow night. But then they've got Michigan coming to town on Friday. And then UCLA uh, Saturday as they've got that little tournament in town. Going to be a tough road, but it'll be nice if they can be 3-0 and going up against Michigan and have some confidence. And even be, even though Cal was a really bad team last year, uh, it's got to give them some confidence beating a Pac-12 team this early on. Yeah, and the standard for UNLV basketball should not be like just winning in the Mountain West. Like This is a team with a storied history where they used to win basketball games. You can't be afraid to go against some of the biggest you know programs in the country. That's how you build character, and that's how you actually get these guys ready to play in big games. No, I agree, and and I like what I'm seeing, what Kevin Kruger's done. The most impressive thing is we had Kevin on the show last week is bringing back Bryce Hamilton. We didn't harp on that enough, but Bryce Hamilton, I believe, will play in the NBA. I believe he's going to for sure have a stellar career in Europe, but I think he's got the goods to play in the NBA. And somehow, on a terrible UNLV team that he's been on his, his college career, uh, Kevin Kruger talked him into coming back here after he declared himself for the NBA draft. Didn't really get any, any likes, but I think it's a really big thing for Bryce Hamilton and for the program to be here. Interesting. We'll see what happens. Looks like a UNLV team that could be fun to watch. Listen, we're out of time. want to thank uh, Chris Magnum Chapman back in the Fox Sports Residential Bank Corp studio for producing the show today, helping out. Also, of course, Spencer, the Wiz Ostrowski. I'm Brian Feldman. This is Out of Line. We will see you next Sunday. Bye-bye.